But now for Elijah. We have to do a little bit of history to start off with, I think. We're in about the year 800 BC, about 150 years after King David. And then as we go on to look at Esther, she crops up about another 400 years later. Elijah is in the northern land of Israel, which has gone apostate. Esther is in the city of Babylon in the Persian Empire, a place which has never heard of about the Lord at all. And both of these two people face many challenges. How do you live a faithful and loyal life before the Lord in a society which has either abandoned him, northern Israel, or has never heard anything about him, Persia? How do you continue to act as salt and light? How do you face up to the principalities and powers that demand obedience from you and compromise, but then will seek to destroy you if you try to resist? And so we begin with Elijah. He comes from Tishbe, little place east of Jordan. And he appears before Ahab, who is the sixth king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he says, there will be no rain until further notice. Why is this important? Well, we need to remember that we'd better call up a map. that we're now in the stages of a divided kingdom. The first king of the united land was Saul, then he was followed by David, then after David came King Solomon, after King Solomon came King Rehoboam, who made a complete mess of things. So much so that the ten northern tribes decided to declare UDI, Unilateral Declaration of Independence, and they took themselves off under one of their generals, uh, who became their new king, that was Jeroboam. And the southern part remained separate, and that was just two tribes, that was called Judah, and that was just made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin only. But there was a problem of geography that arose at this point. We, we were heading, having geography from David Hellowell this morning, well here's a little bit more. Uh, just above where the name of Judah is, it should be possible to see a little red dot, and that is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, you, you may see, is just south of the border between the two kingdoms. And Jeroboam saw that this was going to bring a problem in that uh, people, of course, still wanted to go up to Jerusalem, where Solomon's temple was, where God had promised to meet his people, to offer sacrifices, to join in the festivals, and at various other times as well. So there'd be a continual trail of people from the new kingdom of Israel south into Judah, and Jeroboam saw very wisely that this was going to affect the loyalty of people. Would they stay loyal to him, or would they still be half attached to King Rehoboam down south? Well, he may have been very far-sighted to think of this, but what he did was absolutely appalling. What he said was, I'm going to have to provide some, or, some alternative shrines 
where people may go and make their offerings, where people may go and hold their festivals. And so he designated two places as shrines, one in the north of his country and one in the south of his country, and in each one of these shrines he put a golden calf. We don't know exactly what these would have looked like, these two pictures here. The first one is a reconstruction. The second one has actually been dug up by archaeologists, but it's not Jeroboam's calf, it's the wrong time and the wrong place. But again, I think it gives you an idea of probably what King Jeroboam had. And uh, Jeroboam, uh, I must uh, just show you this picture, which I like very much, which comes from a medieval manuscript. I'll come back to that in a moment. From a medieval manuscript, there's King Jeroboam and some of his lords, and there are the two calves. And what Jeroboam says to his people is this. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What an outrageous lie. Graven images, idolatry, apostasy, deliberately turning back on the Lord, I am who I am, who had really delivered them from slavery in Egypt. This was Jeroboam's great sin. And as you read through the chapters of the book of 1 Kings, you will find that the judgment on all the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, is this, that they continued in the sin of Jeroboam. So it was just prolonged, and it was part of the nature of the northern kingdom. Officially, it had changed its religion and gone apostate. And for the Lord, they substituted the god Baal. Now, if you read the books, you'll find that there were several Baals, and uh, different uh, areas tended to have their own particular Baal. But they are, tend to be lumped together, and sometimes are in the stories that we read in the Book of Kings, they're not together as one, as they are in the stories of Elijah, just called Baal. Baal was a fertility god. It was Baal who provided the rain and the good climate and plenteous crops and your flocks and herds prospered and had many young and you, gave, you gained material prosperity through Baal. But of course it all depended upon rain. Baal was worshipped by acts of fertility, which meant, in practice, sexual intercourse. And uh, the prophet Amos, writing later, has a particularly acid remark about the northern kingdom, where he talks about the disgrace of a father and his son sharing the same girl. That was what went on at these shrines in the northern kingdom. And so Elijah in the first verse that we heard read tonight, says, I serve the Lord, the God of Israel, no more fertility till I say so. A great challenge from God, the Lord who made heaven and earth, I am who I am, to Baal. Then Elijah, for his own safety, disappears again. And he finishes up at uh, near, in a brook, I should say a burn, shouldn't I? Mm -hmm. The burn, Kerith, near his hometown of Tishbe, east of the Jordan. <coughs> there he is. And 
he takes refuge there and the ravens come and feed him. I, I've tried to envisage how this worked out. I can't really do how this worked out. I, I went to look at pictures and there are all sorts of pictures on the web which you could download if you wanted to where the ravens bringing Elijah what looked like burger buns. <laughs> but how, how the, the details of how Elijah was fed are not given but certainly he was by God's provision. But then the drought begins to bite and the burn dries up and Elijah is off again and the Lord commands him to go north north of the land of Israel, north of the land that God had given to the 12 tribes completely, into the land of Phoenicia, to a little town which practiced metalworking, halfway between Tyre and Sidon. So Elijah has really moved out of the orbit of Israel altogether to this little town called Zarephath. It's still there, its modern name is Sarepta, I gather you can find it in atlases. Whether they still do metal work there or not, I don't know. But there, and the Lord says, I have commanded a widow to feed you. God is in control. God is in control over the drought. He is in control over the ravens. He is control over this widow. And she responds to Elijah's promise of what God has said he will do. She believes Elijah's promise of what God has said he will do. And she finds it to be true. And so the three of them, Elijah, the widow, and her son, have their needs met. Once again, many extraordinary pictures. This is the one I like. It's a sketch by Rembrandt. A little sketch and of the three of them with a little dog. And I especially like just this casual little drawing of the dog and the of the little dog and the little boy together. The boy seems to have a spoon and a plate and maybe the dog is after the food. It's lovely, isn't it? And then the roof falls in. The boy dies. And the woman cries out and I turned to the paraphrase the message to get the feel of this. You holy man barging in, exposing my sins and killing my son. She had heard God through Elijah. She had believed God's promise. She had, God, she had done what God commanded. And now this. And some people's experience today is like this. And we may sometimes feel like this. And we may know people to whom such things happen. They say, I am a Christian. I have put my trust in Christ. I am trying to live my life so as to please him. And now this is what you have done to me. Some family tragedy strikes. And tragedy is the right word. Elijah calls it a tragedy. Oh Lord my God, he cries out. Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow? face to face with untimely death. Now in fact if you read up and down the book of books of kings you find that there is death all over the place. The two divided kingdoms Israel and Judah are often at war and people are getting killed. 
There is also the custom in those days of whenever the royal family changes, as it does several times in Israel, there is no continuous dynasty like down south in Judah. Whenever the royal family changes, the new king massacres every relative of the old royal family. And you can read this happening several times in the story of the kings of Israel. There is death everywhere. So why does this one come to our attention so much? Why does the writer, the compiler of this history, want to draw our attention to this? Maybe it's the personal nature. And he wants us to think about the personal nature of when these tragedies happen. Oh Lord my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow? Sometimes, you know, we sing a hymn in church, maybe not so often these days, but still frequently from time to time, written by Francis of Assisi, starts off, All creatures of our God and King, open your mouths and with us sing, Alleluia. There's a verse that the modern hymn books always leave out. And now most kind and gentle death, waiting to hush our latest breath. None of the modern hymn books put that in. And one can see that maybe it doesn't quite strike the right tone that they would like to have when, when, we are, when we are supposed to sing this hymn, but maybe there is a theological reason behind this as well. Death is not kind. Death is not gentle. When it strikes personally, it is a tragedy. Death, Paul tells us, is the last enemy. I think of a poem by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, which starts off, Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And this poor widow rages. She rages against God. And sometimes we do too when family tragedy strikes. There's a man I know whose wife died of cancer and who said, God has deserted me. He, write, he wrote an open letter to his church saying, God has deserted me. And this tragedy of the death of his wife has turned him away from Christianity as far as we can tell altogether. And Elijah comes down, he carries the boy's body up to his little room on the roof and he cries almost indignantly to God and a miracle does happen. A single, isolated miracle. The boy's life is restored. And Jesus uses this time of Elijah spending time with the widow of Zarephath to teach us something new, something more. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he declared in the synagogue one day to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the captive, sight for the blind, for the time of God's favour has arrived. And then he goes on, remember Elijah, remember that Elijah was sent north, out of Israel, to the widow who lived in Zarephath. So showing, well, a number of things to the congregation who were listening to him that morning, but showing this also, that God's favour is spread worldwide, that God's favour has no boundaries at all. And shortly afterwards we read in Luke's Gospel that 
Jesus met a widow, another widow, who had also lost her son. And Jesus meets the funeral procession as this boy's body is being carried off to be buried. And Jesus raises this son. Not by beseeching God, as Elijah did, but by the authority of his own word. And I want to read to you one or two things now from the Bible and also a poem that I think sums up what we need to learn from the story of the widow of Zarephath as she faces death, the death of a loved one, that speak to us. First of all, from the meeting of Jesus and Martha at the tomb of Lazarus. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. <coughs> Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know that he will rise again at the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is come into the world. Then everybody moves off from Martha and Mary's house to the tomb. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odour. He has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of those standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. A poem written about 400 years ago by the poem John Duff. Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful. For thou art not so. For those whom thou think'st thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From thee and sit which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, then much more from thee must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery. Thou art slave, to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, 
and dust with poppy, war and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then? One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. And finally, words we heard read aloud last Sunday morning in our morning service. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. For our light and murmury troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Yes. <laughs>